So Matthew chapter 27, we pick it up in verse 33. And Matthew writes, And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, Golgotha, this is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For, so, for he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So as we continue our in-depth study of the gospel of Matthew, or as Jay likes to say, our six-year study, <laughs> we find ourselves in verse 27, you know, looking at the crucifixion of our Lord. And, you know, it's, uh, as we're looking at the crucifixion, it's my prayer that each of us would gain a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of our Savior and His great love for us. And I, I pray that for each of us that are here today, each of us that are listening, maybe even online, that we would hear the voice of the Lord this morning, that we'd hear Him speak to the needs that we're experiencing this morning, whether it's a need for encouragement or strength in the midst of a, a difficult situation, whether it's healing that's needed, either physical or uh, relational, emotional. You know, maybe, you know, you have the need of an exhortation this morning. And I pray that you would hear that. Maybe there's a need for correction, perhaps a need for uh, vision, direction, guidance. You know, maybe it's just faith to believe. You know, I, I pray that, the, that you would hear the Lord speaking to you. I really believe that the Lord uh, would speak to you and meet you. You know, meet you in that need in a special way, in a personal way. I believe that's what he wants to do this morning. Well, last time we were together, we, we looked at the physical suffering of Jesus Christ on the day of his crucifixion. And if you weren't here with us during our last study in Matthew, I'd encourage you to go to the website, you know, uh, watch that teaching. I think it, it was a study that helps us to understand, you know, as best as we can, you know, the cost of salvation. Yet even with all that we observed and learned and talked about in that study, uh, you know, it's still something that's so very difficult to even to begin to comprehend what our Lord suffered what he went through in order to provide uh, forgiveness and salvation for each of us individually. Before we get started this morning, I do want to remind you of a couple things. First, 
Matthew's gospel is written primarily to the Jew, but not entirely. It's, of course, written to us too. But Matthew's purpose for writing uh, the gospel is to show his readers uh, the Old Testament prophecies and and promises regarding uh, the Messiah and how they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. 129 times Matthew refers to or directly quotes Old Testament the Old Testament scriptures, you know, and that's more than all the other gospel writers put together, right? Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as the King of Israel, the long-awaited promised Messiah. And the second thing that we want to keep in our our memories is uh, we want to remember the recent events, the events that we've covered in the last few studies that have led us to this point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has endured a long, sleepless night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested and bound and led away to the high priest to stand trial before the religious leaders. And after what was really just a sham mockery of a trial, these religious leaders began to beat him, punch him in the face, and spit upon him, you know, to beat and spit upon the face of our Savior. Then they led Jesus away to Pilate, who, after many unsuccessful attempts to release him, you know, gave him over to be scourged and then crucified. And we saw how the entire Roman garrison surrounded him. They stripped him and placed a scarlet robe upon him. And, you know, in a sixth sense of humor, you know, they said, hey, every king needs a crown. So they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they gave him a a reed as a scepter. And then they bowed down before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they took that reed from him and began to beat him on top of the head, uh, beat that crown of thorns down upon his head with that reed. And then after that, they led Jesus away to be scourged. And we talked about the horrific nature of scourging uh, last time we were together. After scourging Jesus, they led him away to be crucified. Our Savior, so beaten, so bloodied, so abused, the spit of sinful man mingled with the blood of our precious Savior. He was so weakened by the abuse that he's actually unable to make the trip to Golgotha, you know, without assistance. And we pick up the story in verse 33. It says, and when they had come to the place called uh, Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, just in case you don't know, okay, the Latin word uh, for Golgotha is Calvary, all right? That's, that's um, you know, where we get the, that term. It's from the Latin And I think it's an important detail to note, uh, but uh, Golgotha or Calvary, right? It's to the north of the temple, outside the city gates. You know, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he quotes Psalms 40, verse 6 through 8, and he applies it to Jesus. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. 
and your laws within my heart. Now, what that Old Testament prophecy is saying is it's saying that every single book, every single chapter, every single verse, every single Old Testament picture, it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. Well, okay, but, you know, I, I don't really understand why Golgotha being, you know, north of the temple and outside the city gate is an important detail to note. Well, in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 1, we have instructions regarding the burnt offering. Leviticus 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall provide its blood, uh, uh, sprinkle its blood all around the altar. So the burnt offering, it was an offering of consecration. It was to be totally consumed and it was to be killed north of the altar. And then you come to Leviticus chapter 4 in regards to the sin offering for the common man, not the sin offering for the nation or for the priest, but just for guys and gals like, like you and I, right? That sin offering for the common man, we're told it's to be killed in the place of the burnt offering north of the altar, but it was to be offered outside of the camp. And Jesus was given as the offering for our sin, right? He was killed north of the altar, outside of the camp, outside of the city walls. Now, it's interesting to me, again, you know, uh, you, may, you may know this and you may not. If you don't know it, I want to be the first one to tell you. But Golgotha, Mount Calvary, it goes by another name in the Old Testament. You know what it is? Anybody know? What? Mount Moriah. That's right. Mount Moriah. It's called Mount Moriah in the book of Genesis. I know, high five. Run over there, Tana. Give him a high five. Way to go, right? It's called Mount Moriah in, in the book of Genesis. It's the very place that Abraham offered Isaac, his son, the son of promise, right? His only son, it says in Genesis 22, whom he loved. Abraham offering Isaac was a foreshadowing of the father offering Jesus, his only son, whom he loved. On the very same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. That's amazing. You know, I love seeing these pictures pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament, revealing him to be the Messiah. The entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. In verse 34, it says, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Again, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 69, 21 says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar or sour wine to drink. Now, the sour wine was mixed with gall. It, it acted as a painkiller. Most of the men who were crucified, they, they were unable to handle the pain of these spikes being driven through the hands and the feet, nailing them to the cross. So, you know, these wealthy women, what they would do, they came together as a ministry. They, they would offer this wine mixed with gall to help the accused deal with the pain. It acted as an anesthesia. But Jesus refused it, Right? In order to suffer the full wrath of God, our sins deserved. He, as, as he took on 
uh, our sins upon himself. And again, this is a prophetic picture being fulfilled right here. As you read through the Old Testament, you come to Exodus and uh, we're given instructions regarding the Passover lamb in Exodus. And the specific instruction regarding the Passover lamb is that it's not to be boiled in water. It was to be roasted in the fire, Exodus 12, 9, right? The Passover lamb was not to be boiled. In other words, it's not to be insulated from the fire, right? Jesus, our Passover lamb, refused the anesthesia. He refused the drug that would numb the pain of the cross, insulating him from the fiery wrath of God, fulfilling this prophetic picture. And in verse 35, says, then they crucified him. And as we talked about, you know, throughout the Gospels, there's not a lot of details about crucifixion. It's just simply kind of, uh, you know, put out that they crucified him. Because the details are so horrific, we wouldn't be able to take it in. But Cicero, a Roman statesman and philosopher, this is what he said. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To put him to death is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? So abominable, so guilty in action, cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. You know, and yet that's how they treated our Savior. That's how they treated the Son of God and God the Son, right? It was a crime. It was wickedness. It was murder. It was the most abominable act in the history of mankind. However, it's vital for us to remember Jesus was not a victim of a series of unfortunate events as some would conclude. He wasn't forced to endure the cross uh, by the hands of the Romans. He chose the cross. You know, Jesus said, speaking of his life, John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. You know, I think it's so humbling to understand that Jesus went willingly to the cross to bear our sins, to bear my sins, to bear your sins. Jesus didn't fight or resist in any way. You know, as they nailed him to the cross, uh, he offered his hands. He freely extended his arms offering them to the soldiers to nail him to the cross. Jesus willingly chose the cross out of his love for you and I. How in the world, and I pose this question really to myself, but for all of us, how in the world can we possibly, you know, often actually doubt his love for us? You know, how is it that we can doubt God's love for us when he's gone to such extreme lengths to demonstrate his great love towards us? In verse 35, it says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, Matthew takes us back to prophecy, points out, that what the soldiers did here was a fulfillment of uh, Psalm 22, 18, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 
And again, this prophecy is given a thousand years before Jesus even came into the world. Matthew points to this and many other prophecies to show us that it was all part of God's plan to provide salvation for all mankind. David gives us, I mean, this blows me away. David gives us the exact picture of what would take place at the foot of the cross a thousand years after he gives this prophecy in Psalm 22. So that when this event took place and people saw it exactly as prophesied, you know, we'd have, we'd have evidence, evidence that would allow us to clearly identify Jesus, clearly recognize Jesus as the Messiah. You know, trusting your life to Jesus for salvation is not some blind leap of faith. That's not the case. God has given us evidence. God has given us what Peter said is more sure than what I saw with my eyes, is more sure than what I know I heard with my ears. Peter said God has given us the more sure word of prophecy, right? Matthew is making a convincing case here for his Jewish readers and anyone else who's willing to look at the evidence honestly. I think that it's interesting to consider Jesus's clothing as this verse uh, 35 mentions uh, his clothing. I think it's interesting to consider his clothing. In Isaiah 6.1, we read of Isaiah's vision of the throne of God. You know it. It says, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? The result of seeing um, how glorious the Lord is, Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, I, I can't begin to imagine what that glory must have looked like. I mean, can you, just that glory that Isaiah saw, can you imagine it? Such glory that would cause him to say, woe is me. You know, uh, Psalm 93, 1 says, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. What does that glory and that majesty look like? I don't know. One day I'm going to know. I can't wait. But I don't actually know now. I can't begin to imagine now. But what I do know is that when Jesus was transfigured, when his glory was revealed there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark described it, Mark 9.3, saying his clothes began, became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And then Matthew said, Matthew 17.2, he said, when he, speaking of Jesus, was transfigured before him, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as snow. Jesus left his glorious robes in heaven. You know, that was the robe that Isaiah saw, right? The robe that filled the temple. But coming to the earth, 
Jesus uh, took on the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself, taking on the clothing of a carpenter. Right? The very clothes that shine like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those are the clothes, believe it or not, these Roman soldiers are gambling for. I mean, it's amazing. Stripped of even his clothes, Jesus became completely poor for us so that we could become completely rich in him. And through all of these events, through all the sin, through all the pain, through all the agony, through all the injustice, prophecy shows us that God guided all things to his desired fulfillment. Someone looking in from the outside may be tempted to think that the events swirling around Jesus, you know, just seem like they're out of control. But the truth is, God had a bigger plan. God has a bigger plan. His invisible hand is guiding all things to his desired end. And in verse 36, it says, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. You know, it's surprising to realize just how dark man's heart can be. And I think the darkness of man's heart, the darkness of all uh, man, mankind is on full display here. People gathering to watch Jesus die. You know what? Untouched by his suffering. Totally unmoved by the events surrounding his crucifixion. They knew Jesus to be innocent of any wrongdoing, right? And they sat down to watch the murder of an innocent man. You know, this too is another fulfillment of prophecy found in uh, Psalm 22. And then in verse 37, it says, and they put over his head the accusation against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It was customary for there to be a plaque, you know, of some sort indicating the crime uh, that the accused committed. It was intended to be a deterrent uh, for anyone, the general population as they're uh, looking on. It was to communicate to anyone looking on, if you do a crime, you'll have a similar end. However, I think we can view this as the first gospel track ever written written by the uh, Roman Bible Tract Society. Pilate, instead of, uh, of accusing Jesus of any crime, he declares him to be a king. And that's the glorious truth concerning Jesus. He is the king, worthy of all my praise and all my submission. And in verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Jesus was crucified between uh, two thieves. Again, fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked. And 53, 2, Isaiah 53, 2, And he was numbered with the transgressor. You know, I think that they placed Jesus between these two thieves, uh, maybe to, to intimate in some way that he was the worst malefactor of the three. Now, there are those that say, and uh, it sounds a little corny, it's a little bit cliche, but in one sense, I think it's true. 
There are those that say Jesus was the biggest thief of all time and that he has stolen my heart. Yeah. It's true. You know what? It's a little bit cliche, but you know what? It makes me want to cry because you know what? He did it for me to express that kind of love for me. And you know what? He did it for you. And, and I would bet if you're a believer, he's stolen your heart. He's captured our heart. He's stolen our love. And I'm thankful for it. You know, that's my Savior. That's my God. And in verse 39, those who uh, passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7. At this point, I imagine Matthew, he just expects his readers just to see what's going on, right? Uh, he expects them just to be like, okay, enough. I'm, I'm all in. You know, it's obvious that all of these prophecies being fulfilled clearly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the one whom all Scripture points to. All these things happened totally independent of Jesus. It's utterly ridiculous for anyone to think that Jesus arranged these things, these very specific things, to occur beforehand, as some have accused him of doing. You know, there are liberal scholars that would have you believe, you know, it was all planned. Jesus knew all the Old Testament prophecies. You know, it was all planned. He planned it. He coordinated it all. Uh, you know, it's just one big Passover plot, you know, which happens to be the name of the book of one of the liberal college professors that puts that ridiculous theory uh, out there. My recommendation to you is don't waste your time reading it. But how could Jesus, any thinking mind, how could anyone think that Jesus would have any control over how much he would be betrayed for by Judas? You know, how could anyone arrange for the soldiers to divide his garments and then gamble for his tunic at the foot of the cross? How is it possible? How could he have possibly arranged to be crucified between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left? How could he have control of the way the crowd would respond and the very words that the people would say. I mean, it's just an insulting uh, proposition. It just, you know, it insults a person's intelligence to put something forth. Uh, it's ridiculous. And in verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging uh, their heads. You know, we studied last time, we started the study out last time that we were together with Hebrews 12 too. Hebrews 12, 2, the writer of the Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, said, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame of the cross. The shame that Jesus is said to have despised. It wasn't limited to the physical suffering he endured on that cross. It included the blasphemy and the mocking and the reviling. We read here in verse 39 that they blaspheme him. We read in verse 41, we see them mocking him. And in verse 44, we see that Jesus is reviled by those who were being crucified with him. He endured it all as he hung on that cross. And what I find so unbelievable, what I find so unbelievable for many of the religious leaders, along with others that were watching him die, his crucifixion wasn't enough for them. They weren't satisfied with Jesus being silenced. They weren't satisfied with seeing him uh, murdered. 
It wasn't enough for them to see him hanging on the cross, suffering and dying. They sought additional ways to shame him. They sought additional ways to humiliate him. You know, they wanted to add uh, insult to injury. So they sought additional ways of making him as miserable as they possibly could in his death. And they began to blaspheme him. The Greek word translated here, blaspheme, uh, if you're reading a, a, a different translation than the New King James, it might be translated reviled, but it's the same word for blaspheme. It comes from two other Greek words. Uh, one meaning to injure, the other meaning uh, speech, right? It's referring to speech that causes injury. Speech that is uttered with the intent of hurting the hearer. Speech that is intended to inflict pain on the heart of the recipient, right? It could also be translated to beat with words, right? There was nothing more they could do to his body. His body had endured the physical beating and lashings literally from head to toe, right? There was nothing more they could do to his physical body, but they weren't satisfied with that. Now they begin to lay stripes on his heart, right? And on his mind, as Jesus hung on the cross, they begin to heap mocking and blasphemies upon him. It just goes to show us the darkness of unregenerate man, the darkness of the heart that mankind possesses. I mean, you would have thought that even the worst of these men would have looked at Jesus hanging innocently on that cross. And they all knew him to be innocent. They all knew he didn't do anything wrong. But you would have thought that even the worst of these men, seeing Jesus suffer on the cross, would have tried to sneak away, would have tried to disappear and hide themselves from the injustice that was going on, that they would have tried to distance themselves from the murder of an innocent man. And then, tried to, for the rest of their lives, try to ease their conscience, right? By trying to convince themselves that what they did, it wasn't wrong. In fact, it, it, it was necessary. It had to be done. But that's not what happened, right? The hatred these men had towards Jesus is so great that they weren't going to be satisfied with just putting him to death. They weren't going to be satisfied with just inflicting physical pain on him, they wanted him to suffer mentally and emotionally too. So they began to blaspheme him. And in verse 44, we read even the robbers, skipping down a few verses, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him the same thing. The robbers who were being crucified with Jesus joined in and they began to blaspheme Jesus. You know, revile or reviled, those are words that I don't commonly word, use. They're not in my vocabulary. So I looked up uh, in the dictionary what it meant. And it means to express scorn. To use uh, contemptuous speech. Taunting and criticizing angrily in an abusive manner. That's what they did to our Savior. They mocked Jesus. They spoke contemptuously to him in an abusive manner. We might say it this way today. They trash-talked him. Can you believe it? 
I mean, they trash-talked the Son of God who came to take away their sins. Sadly, there are still many people today who are willing to trash-talk the Son of God. Well, in verse 39, it says, And those who pass by blaspheme them, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. I mean, they're just mocking him. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Interesting to me, they said, if you're the son of God. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that ring any bells for you? You know, remember Luke chapter four, when the devil came to Jesus saying, hey, if you're the son of God, you know, the devil came tempting Jesus saying, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread, right? You might remember that the devil was tempting Jesus. Not yet, not on that verse yet. That was just a preview of things to come. The devil came tempting Jesus, right? To, to give into his flesh. Right? If you're the son of God, turn these stones into fresh, hot, buttery bread. Satisfy your hunger. After all, you've been fasting for 40 days, right? The temptation was to take the easy way out. And the devil came again to the Lord and said, not this verse either. All this authority I give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish, right? The devil was saying, hey, look, Jesus, come on. You don't have to go to the cross. You know, take the easy way out. Just worship me and I'll give you the kingdom of, of the world. I mean, after all, that's what you're after, after in the end, isn't it? Right? And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. You know, and then in Luke 4, 13, go for it. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This verse gives us an interesting insight into the methodology of the enemy. He's willing to leave and return in an opportune time. And I believe this is the opportune time where we see the devil come back to him. Save yourself if you're the king. Hey, listen, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross, right? The temptation was to come down from the cross, put an end to the pain and suffering. It's not necessary, Jesus. God's way is not the only way. There's an easier way, matter of fact, right? Go my way and avoid the suffering. How often do you hear the enemy tempt you with something like that? Man, I, I tell you, I hear it all the time. In verse 41, likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders. These men who claim to be representatives of God begin to ridicule our Savior. They begin to make fun of him, make him making him out to be a joke, sarcastically dismissing his teachings and his claims. As I said, you know what, previously, it wasn't enough for them that he was hanging there nailed to a cross, right? It wasn't enough for them to see him suffering and dying on a cross. They want to shame him. They want to humiliate him. 
They want to add insult to injury. They want to make him as miserable as they possibly could in his death. And this was their motivation behind these words. That's what they're doing. And what I find very instructive here, with just a short exposure to the blasphemy, the mocking, and the reviling of these religious leaders, the the mockery that they're just dishing out on top of Jesus, these other two criminals, right? One on each side of them. They, they begin to revile him too. What does that tell you about the people you give ear to? What does that tell us about the people we're listening to? You know, the people that are talking bad things about other people, saying things that are not true. You know what? Don't give yourself to gossip. You know what? Don't give yourself to listening to tr- the trash talking. Well, in the midst of all the pain and the suffering, in the midst of the blasphemy and the reviling, what was Jesus feeling in that moment? We get a little insight into what he was feeling. Psalm 69, 19 and 20. It says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. And I'm full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, the dishonor, the disgrace, with a broken heart, with a heaviness that can't be described with words. He looked down for the cross and only saw adversaries. Right? No one who would take pity on him in his suffering. Psalm 22, it gives us the perspective of the Messiah from the cross. And Psalm 22, uh, 12 and 13 says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. And in verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has encircled me. Spurgeon said, Nothing torments a man when in pain more than mockery. When Jesus Christ most wanted words of pity and looks of kindness, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. I mean, every aspect of the crucifixion being fulfilled uh, in these prophecies. Verse 41, likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. You know, isn't that an interesting comment? You know, there's something wonderful in what they said right there. Did you hear the confession of truth? Right? They admitted that Jesus saved others. Before, if Jesus had helped anyone, Right? They said it was through the power of the devil. Now they declare that it was Jesus that saved others. You know, they make this confession before Jesus while he's hanging there on the cross. They make this admission recorded for the entire world to see. The very men that sought to put an end to Jesus and his ministry testify that he is able to save others, that he has saved others. Jesus indeed 
saved others. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the sick. He cleansed the leper. He raised the dead. He restored the, the lame. And the deaf heard the voice of God. How amazing is that? Right? Jesus is the Savior, the promised Messiah. And these wicked religious leaders, they can't deny it. Right? It's true. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. But wait a minute, Gare. He could have saved himself. Remember in the garden? Remember he told Peter when they came to arrest him? Hey, put your sword in its place. You know, for those who take the sword will perish by the sword. And remember he said to Peter, or do you not think that I cannot pray right now to my father? And, ha and he'll provide me with, with 12 legions of angels? All he had to do was save, say the word and more than 72,000 angels would have jumped over the ramparts of eternity and come and rescued him, right? He had saved others. He had saved others. It's true. He could have saved himself. But if Jesus is able to save others, if for him to be able to save others, and that to the uttermost, you know, he couldn't save himself. If he had saved himself, he would not be able to save anyone eternally. Right? There is no salvation for you or me apart from the cross. That's the only way of salvation. There is no other way. Little did these men realize that what they were saying was the absolute truth. He saved others himself. He cannot save. And he continues, they, uh, Matthew continues in verse 42. If he's the king of Israel, they said, let him come down from the cross. You know, the world actually does like Jesus. They, they do. They just don't like a crucified Jesus. You know, they like the sayings of Jesus. You know, the sayings like, hey, judge not lest you be judged. They like repeating that. They like the meek and mild Jesus but they don't like the Jesus on the cross because then they would have to admit that it's their sins that put him there. Then they would have to turn from those sins in order to be saved. And the world doesn't like that crucified Jesus. They said, if he's the king of Israel, uh, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. What they're saying is, do a miracle of our choosing and then we'll believe do this thing or fix that thing, you know, work in this way over here and then I'll believe, I'll give you my life. And you know, we can be guilty of that too as Christians. You know, we can demand miracles of our choosing, saying, Lord, if you'll do this, you know what? Then I'll give you my praise or I'll follow you in this area of my life and I'll give myself to you. If you'll just do this for me, Little, little do you know, if that's things, the way that we say things to the Lord, you know what? We don't understand. God is actually up to something bigger, right? Let's not be guilty of the same things that those who crucified our Lord are guilty of. Let's just give our hearts to him unconditionally as he gave his heart to us. They said, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. As if Jesus already didn't give him enough evidence to prove his claims to be the son of God and God the son. Healing and setting people uh, free who'd come to him, diseased and demon possessed. 
You know, he did what only God has the power to do, and that's restore life to those that have died. You know, the issue is never enough evidence to believe. It's always an issue of the will. You know, people don't want to believe. You know, they don't want to humble themselves and admit that they're sinners, right? That they've done wrong in the sight of God. That they're not good enough to make it to heaven based on their own righteousness. They don't want to believe. Therefore, what do they do? They make excuses for their unbelief. Jesus did a greater miracle than coming down from the cross. A greater miracle which should cause everyone in the world to believe in him. He rose from the dead, right? Even with the greatest of all miracles, the religious leaders, along with most of the world today, still don't believe in him. In verse 33, 43, it says, he trusted in God, let him deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Again, fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy that was written a thousand years before Jesus uh, ever came into the world. A prophecy of exactly what those who would crucify the Messiah would say. It's Psalm 22, 8. It says, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You know, does anyone really believe that Jesus arranged that? These religious leaders arranged with them to say that when he was being crucified. I mean, it's crazy just to even consider it. The reality is every little detail is fulfilled prophecy and it's all pointing to Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, as the Savior of the world. You know what? If I've lost you anywhere in the study, if you've turned, tuned out, tune in right here because this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. In verse 43, we see they're ridiculing and mocking Jesus for his belief and trust in God. Hey, Jesus, you know, there you are nailed to that cross. You know, look at what trusting in God has done for you. God doesn't care. Come on. All your talk of trusting and believing in God, it hasn't done anything for you except get you into this mess, right? It was all for nothing. If God really loved you, he'd deliver you. You know, connect the dots, Jesus. I mean, listen, since there's no deliverance in your time of need, then God's not worthy of your trust, right? He doesn't care for you. He doesn't love you. You know, have you ever heard the enemy whisper anything like that to you in your ear? Again, I've heard that. The reality is God is up to bigger things, right? The cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love for us. The cross is where God's love is displayed in its fullness, in its fullness. It's upon the cross where our Savior suffered and died, where he shed his blood for us, for our salvation. And ironically, it's at the cross where the depth of man's depravity and hatred for God is also displayed in its fullness. Jesus came to the earth to declare God's love for man. And the cross is what man did to him, right? Jesus suffered outside of the gates of the city. He was cut off from his people so that we could become his own special people, a holy nation, God's very own possession. 
right? Jesus suffered outside the city gates. He took the abuse. He took the mocking. He took the shame so that when we suffer, so that when we suffer, we can experience, you know, these feelings of abandonment. He suffered so that when we feel those feelings of abandonment and suffering, it now becomes an opportunity for us to enter into a deeper fellowship with the Savior, right? He knows what you're going through because he's gone through it. The world is going to mock us as believers, right? We'll hear the voice of the enemy ridicule and revile us for our faith in God. You know, the world will will freely say, hey, I thought you were a Christian. Hey, where's your God now? You know, what good does all that praying and going to church do for you? What good uh, did it do for you to read your Bible, right? You know, those are the kinds of things that we're going to hear from the world when we find ourselves in prolonged trials, right? The world is going to mock your claims of God having a plan for your life. And when it seems like nothing is going your way, they're going to mock you. The enemies of Christ are going to revile you and make fun of you, ridicule you for your belief in God. I mean, you believe what? God created everything? (laughs) Come on, man. You actually believe that there's a right and wrong? I mean, you're kidding me, right? You believe that sex before marriage is wrong? I mean, how puritanical is that? How old are you again? You know, you really believe that God has a plan for your life? I mean, you got to be kidding me, right? When you're facing hardships and facing periods of painful, prolonged trials, you know, there are going to be people around you that are willing to laugh at you, willing to mock you and ridicule you for your faith in Christ. They'll stand back and they'll just, unmoved by the suffering, unmoved by what they see, they'll just stand back and say, okay, let's just sit here and see what happens. Just like they sat back and and watched Christ die on that cross. Right? You can rest assured, the devil will offer you an easy way out when you're facing prolonged trials. But I want to encourage you to remember in that moment, God is up to bigger things. God is up to bigger things, bigger things than you and I could possibly ever imagine. You know what? The devil is a liar. I loved it when Dennis Zach was here. He said, uh, you know how you can tell when the devil's lying? He's speaking. Because <laughs> all he says is a lie. He's a liar. But God is doing something greater. Should he tell you what he's doing you wouldn't believe it, right? Something so amazing is what he's at work doing that you couldn't begin to comprehend it if he told you. God's invisible hand is at work in your life to bring about greater things. His invisible hand is at work in your life to bring all things to his desired conclusion for his glory, for his purposes, The crucifixion of our Lord was according to the will of God for our salvation. Anyone who had knowledge of the Old Testament, you know, that was there and saw the events of Christ's crucifixion would have seen God's plan in action. 
being crucified outside of the camp, being offered wine mixed with gall, you know, uh, the soldiers dividing his garments, gambling for his tunic, right? Uh, being crucified with transgressors. Even the words of those that mock Jesus, right? Every detail known to God beforehand. And the same is true regarding the trials that you face, regarding the trials that I face. When we're feeling abandoned and all alone, Jesus is there for you. You know what? When you're feeling lost, not knowing what to do, which is, you know, like the normal state for me, you know what? God's Spirit is there to guide you. When you're feeling beat down and you don't have, you know, what it takes to go any further, God is at work accomplishing a greater thing in you, greater than you could ever imagine. Hang in there. You know what? It's too early to give up. It's too early to give up. One of my favorite all-time portions of scriptures, favorite all-time, Psalm 68, 8 through 12. 66, 8 through 12. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living, and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. Do you ever feel tested? You have refined us as silver is refined. Do you ever feel like you're in the fire and the heat's being turned up? You've brought us into the net. Do you feel, ever feel like you're trapped with no way out? You laid affliction on our backs and have caused men to ride over our heads. Do you ever feel like people are just walking all over you? We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. God is at work in each of our lives. He's working to bring us through the trials and tribulations that we're facing in this world. He promises to bring us through the pain, to bring us through the darkness of the world, and to lead us into his glorious light. You know, my God promises to never leave us or forsake us, right? And to bring us out to rich fulfillment, to bring us before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's what I believe. I believe it with all my heart. That's what I believe in the midst of the trials that I'm currently facing. How about you, Calvary Chapel Truckee? How about you? Is that what you believe? Is that what you truly believe in the midst of trial? If we just hold on in the hard times and the difficult times, we'll experience joy unspeakable. We'll experience peace that surpasses understanding. And he'll bring us out to rich fulfillment. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the encouragement found in your word. Lord, I'm so thankful for the cross and what it means, the love that caused you to go to the cross to bear my sins that I might be forgiven. Lord, I am so thankful, so very thankful. 
Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are here that are maybe going through just, just terrible trials. Lord, I pray you'd strengthen them. I pray that you would show them that you're present in the fire with them. Lord, just like you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just one like the Son of Man in the fire with them. Lord, I just pray that for my brothers and sisters that you'd comfort them, you'd strengthen them, you'd encourage them that are just really struggling today. Lord, we love you. We give you praise. We give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.